Hi guys, and welcome to TYT Interviews. I'm Jade Lovell, host of SciQ here in New York City. Now, as you know, I love science, but science has a dirty little secret, and it's a secret that's been hidden for decades. It relates to one particular part of science, forensic science, and in particular, the way that we use techniques like bite mark analysis and hair analysis to convict criminals in courtrooms. Now, recent investigation has turned out that a lot of forensic science techniques have never actually been tested and therefore wouldn't really be considered science. But they're still being used in courtrooms to convict criminals that might actually be innocent. And there's potentially thousands of people that are innocent that are sitting in prisons today that don't actually have very strong evidence against them. But the fact that it was called forensic science made it seem stronger than it really was. Now, to talk about this, we have two incredible guests with us here in the studio. First of all, me and Chris, who is the writer in residence in the biological sciences department at Columbia University and is also host of Convergence, which is a new live show and podcast about the future here in New York City. I'm going to have to go and check that out. It's a caveat. It is. Yeah. Uh, Tim Request. He is a science journalist with a PhD in neurosciences, also from Columbia University. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Thanks for, having, for us. having us. So Tim and Mian, you've authored this incredible report in The Nation. It's a huge investigative piece that delves into the flaws in forensic sciences. Um, so for everyone watching this, please go and check it out because it's an extraordinary piece of science communication. In this piece, forensic science put Jemmy Genrish in prison for 24 years. What if it wasn't science? You talk about this guy, Jimmy, and he was convicted of a series of bombings in Colorado. And in this was in the early 1990s, based on forensic science of the 1990s, specifically uh, matching the tools that he had in his house with those that may have been used on the bomb. Um, now, I want to get into that story in just a moment, but first of all, when we're talking about forensic science, what do we actually mean? What does forensic science mean to you? It's, there's a really wide range of disciplines and techniques, so it's a sort of giant umbrella with a motley crew of things underneath it. Um, some of the forensic science techniques are really reliable, so things like DNA or forensic chemistry, things that are based on science that has been done in laboratories and tested, you know, empirical testing that shows us things about the natural world. So we know things about the human genome, we know things about how chemicals interact, and that information can be sort of used by forensic experts and by people who are trying to solve crimes, and it's usually generally really reliable. So things that fit the traditional definition of empirical science. Mm -hmm. That have been tested, but yeah. And then there's other things. There's other things. Um, specifically like things in this pattern matching discipline. So those are things like matching bullets to guns, um, shoe prints to shoes, uh, bite marks, and as you mentioned, the tool mark analysis, which would be matching tools to marks left behind, sort of scratches and striations, and trying to match a tool to those marks. And so I guess my follow-up question to that is, if that's called forensic science, but it's not been empirically tested, how... How does that name come? Why are we using the term science? It's a good question. And we looked into this for the article because we were curious ourselves. And it, you can kind of trace it back to the beginning of the past century. Uh, in the early 1900s, police departments and investigations were getting a little bit more professionalized. And there was a sort of national obsession with new scientific techniques. Uh, 
country had been electrified recently, uh, there were world's fairs, and these started to make their ways into the courtroom. And police stations and police departments started getting crime laboratories. They became staffed by forensic scientists. And the important distinction is that all of the tricks that they developed were used to solve crimes, and they weren't empirically tested in the lab the same way you might test the structure of DNA. So they're called science, but they weren't necessarily put through the same rigorous testing as what we know to be empirical science or tested science. In a yeah. sense, they were they're sort of co-opting the, the idea of science and the words, you know, words like lab and science, um, while abandoning the methods of science. Now, the main character in your piece is a guy named Jimmy Genrick. Now, he's 55 years old now. He's been in prison for 25 years and claims he didn't commit that crime. But he was convicted based on the strength of the forensic evidence against him. Tell me the story. How did this guy get convicted if he's not guilty? So in the early 90s, there was a series of pipe bombs in Grand Junction, Colorado. And it's a town of about 30,000 people, or it was then. Um, it's a ranching and mining town, and so people know explosives. They use them, you know, there's farms and, you know, mining equipment around. Um, he was sort of singled out because he went into a local bookstore and requested a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook, mm -hmm. and the women behind the desk called and reported him to the police. At this point, local investigators had a list of about 30 people that they thought might possibly have done this, they already um, had a list of 30 suspects. Yeah, I mean, you And know, Jimmy was not one of those suspects. I don't think he was on their list at that point, no. Um, but at this point already, the Bureau of Alcohol, Firearm, and Tobacco had been called in, and so you had ATF agents all over the town, and it was a huge deal, this ongoing investigation. You had you know, TV crews, and there were pieces in the local paper, and the whole town was kind of in a frenzy about these bombs because two people had been killed and one person had been wounded and it seemed like the targets were completely random and so no one knew when it was gonna sort of strike again. The investigators searched Jimmy's room at the point he was living alone in a boarding house um, that was about two blocks from where two of the bombs went off and where a third unexploded bomb was also found. So he sort of was on their list as a possible suspect once they searched his room, they found letters that were threatening violence against women, and they also found some fuses that seemed like they were the types that had been used in the bombs, and also these very common household tools like pliers and you know needle-nose pliers, that kind of thing. So because he had ordered this, the copy of this book, The Anarchist Cookbook, he was put onto their suspect list. Police investigated further, found household tools like pliers, fuses, and threatening letters. But what actually connected him to the crime. How, that doesn't seem like beyond reasonable doubt in my book. So what did they use to overcome the missing pieces? Yeah, so you're right. There was a tremendous amount of what you would call circumstantial evidence. Uh, he had these threatening letters. And in some ways, he fit this, you know, the stereotypical profile of a bomber. He was sort of a white, young white male loner. And, but they needed the physical evidence. And what it was was those handheld tools. They used this technique called tool mark analysis, where they picked up fragments of the bomb. It might have been an end cap from the bomb or even a snip of wire. And they look at it under a microscope and they say, they make a little test cut with one of the tools they found in his house. And they look at the little marks that that tool made and they compare it to the little marks they found on a bomb fragment and they declare it to be a match. 
Right? The same way you might say those two fingerprints look like a match, these two tool marks look like a match. So they matched his tools to tools that might have been used on the bomb. Yes. Well, to marks on the bombs. There wasn't, there wasn't a second set of tools. It so, was just his tools and then the marks on so the bomb. So they looked at the bomb, the, they found markings on pieces of the bomb. Mm -hmm. They looked at his tools and they declared these tools made those markings. That's right. Now, what went wrong? Why is that not an acceptable way of finding evidence against a bomber? You know, on the, on the face of it, it seems like maybe that's reasonable. Um, it's conceivable that all tools at a microscopic level leave some special signature that you could look at. The problem is we don't know if that's true. And we also don't know how reliably a person can look through a microscope and make that determination. And that's the real place where science comes in. Science sets up tests. It says, how well can you look at those two tools and say that they're a match? How often do you make a mistake? And those kinds of studies, we were very surprised to find, have just not been done. So you've got a type of evidence being used against them, or a type of science, this forensic science of matching the tools to the bomb, mm -hmm. and it's never been tested. So there's no evidence to suggest that what they were doing to prove him, prove him guilty was actually a reliable way of investigating. Yeah, you get evidence in court, you know, the forensic examiner gets up in front of a jury and says, you know, we only make mistakes one in 10 billion times. And I'm totally convinced that these tools made these marks. They use phrases like to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty. Um, and if you're a jury and you are listening to this, phrases like to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty sounds like science, sounds like it's been tested. And things like one in 10 billion sounds like it's a statistical analysis that has been done and we know how many times we make mistakes. Um, those studies really haven't actually been done. And so what the jury is hearing and what the jury is maybe basing their decision on is deeply flawed. What do you believe? Do you think that Jimmy is guilty? And if not, why? It was really funny. We interviewed the judge on the trial and we asked him that exact same question. Do you think he's innocent or guilty? He said, you know, it's not really my job to decide that. I don't think about it. You're only the judge. You don't yeah. Know. And we scoffed at that. We were like, he's got to know. And several months later, here we are. And I have to honestly say, I don't know. Because uh, we don't actually have evidence one way or the other. There's a bunch of circumstantial evidence. Um, if you are the kind of person who believes that he is the kind of person who could do this, then it's possible. Um, but it's also possible that he is just a kind of lonely guy who was having not a great time in his life, who got targeted by the investigators in this investigation, and they got sort of tunnel vision as they were investigating, and he really didn't do it. Um, so basically, we've convicted him of being guilty. He's been in prison for 25 years, but we just don't know yet. Yeah, we've made a decision as if we do. I think it's very clear that he should not have been convicted. I mean, that's, I think we believe that, that given the evidence that they had against him, there was no gunpowder, there was no reliable witnesses, there was no confession. They just had piles of circumstantial evidence and then this really flimsy forensic piece of evidence, which was the only physical evidence that tied him to the bombs. And that's just not enough to put a person away for life. Now you wrote about this piece, it's uh, just come out in The Nation. Um, how, what made you interested in writing about 
the flaws in forensic science? We're both interested in science, and we're interested in how it has effects in the world. And we'd heard a little bit about, well, maybe it's not as sure as it is on CSI or Law and Order, but we weren't really sure how flawed it was. And so we were interested in kind of diving into that and applying our skills as science writers to forensic science. Yeah, I had heard a talk by Jennifer Manukin, who is the dean of the UCLA Law School, sort of laying out some of the problems. And it, it seemed sort of shocking and made me wonder why more people didn't know this and just made me curious. I think we were both really curious. So I'm glad you mentioned CSI because well, there's this thing now recognized called the CSI effect mm -hmm. where judges are expecting forensic evidence to be shown in cases and give it potentially more weight than it deserves. Um, and also given the way it's framed, they might uh, give it more credibility or more scientific integrity than it perhaps deserves. Why do you think that since we recognize the CSI effect and the flaws have been well documented in the way we're using forensic science, why do you think that this story isn't more common? Why are you guys some of the first to be reporting on it? The CSI effect refers more maybe to prosecutors because they believe that juries expect to see forensic evidence. And so they feel a lot of, uh, they feel a lot of pressure to bring forensic evidence into court. Um, whether or not that's actually true, whether juries actually do expect to see this evidence is not proven, and there's some debate around this, but the fact that prosecutors do feel this pressure, um, it seems to, be, seems to be true. Yeah, and to, as to why you know, this is still going on, I mean, I think that you can also look at prosecutors, um, you can look at judges as well, but let's take a minute and look at prosecutors. They, this science has already been accepted into the courts. So they really have all they need. What incentive do they have to go and subject it to scientific scrutiny when it would weaken one of their most powerful tools? And we think that most prosecutors really believe this to be good, you know, good, reliable techniques. We don't think that they're purposefully, for the most part, convicting people based off of what they know to be pseudoscience. The problem is just that when you really want to believe something and there's really nothing stopping you from not believing it, you're going to. And that's what I think a lot of prosecutors and forensic scientists are doing. And there's a huge conflict of interest here because prosecutors work very closely with forensic scientists and with investigators and they're all kind of part of the same team um, with defense attorneys then on kind of the other side of the team. So they have personal relationships with forensic examiners. They trust them. They believe what they say. They also have spent their entire careers using this evidence in order to get convictions. And if this kind of evidence were called into question, it would call into question past convictions. It would create huge problems for cases that are currently ongoing. And it would be deeply, deeply destabilizing in the criminal justice system. So no one wants to believe that they've been wrong, wrongfully convicting people their whole careers. They want to catch the bad guy and do the right thing. And maybe their evidence is a little weak, but that's okay because they're doing the right thing by putting bad guys behind bars. Mm -hmm. So I can see how that would be a psychological, you know, something that you might fall for. Tim, you've got a PhD in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. How much of your uh, neuroscientific background and your understanding of how the mind and the brain works um, got tied into your work investigating forensic science? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't think I appreciated at the beginning how much um, things like cognitive bias would come into play with the problems with forensic science. 
And when you look at it at a systemic level, I think that's a lot of what you're talking about. It's really hard psychologically to say what I've been doing for my entire life might be flawed. And because of it, people are suffering. Maybe some have been executed. That's an extraordinary psychological task for anybody. Now, I'm glad that you talked about um I'm glad that you mentioned that because I want to talk about a different case um, where cognitive bias might have come into play. So this is a particular case of a person called Sante Tribble. He's also now represented by the Innocence Project and he was convicted of robbing and murdering a man after police found hairs in the stocking mask that was found near the crime scene. And forensic scientists at the time said there was only a 1 in 10 million chance that the hairs found in the mask were, not, were matching anyone but Tribble. And after more advanced analysis techniques have come about to, uh, in more modern times, it turns out that one of those hairs was actually from a dog. So they were unable, using the powers of forensic science and hair analysis, to even match it to a human, let alone, you know, let alone this particular human. So FBI hair analysis has reported error rates as high as 96%. Why is hair analysis still considered to be enough of a convincing tool to keep people in prison or even convict people today? So hair analysis, as you said, 96% of the time, the examiners give flawed testimony, meaning they're exaggerating how certain they are, or in some cases, they clearly got it wrong, as in Sante Tribble, as you mentioned. You know, the FBI does most of, did most of the hair analysis. It's really hard for the FBI to go back and look through all of its cases and say, we've got to review hundreds of cases. We've got to decide, did this person do it? Did this person not do it? It takes a lot of resources to do that. And it, it also looks really, looks really bad for the FBI. And they, they resist that. You know, yeah. They resist that. And the result of that is that people stay in jail. Do you think that we should be dedicating resources to going back through all the FBI's cases and reanalyzing the evidence of people that are still in prison today? You know, they did, they did do a review. It's actually interesting, the story with hair analysis, because they did an internal review uh, looking back at those cases and realized that there were some flaws in the testimony. The troubling thing is that they didn't tell anybody. Or if they told people, they sort of did it haphazardly. So they did a review, yeah. found there were flaws, and thought, we're just going to keep this information to yeah. ourselves. And in 2012, the Washington Post broke the story that they hadn't told anybody. And at that point, they conducted a review, which was actually, in, to their credit, was in collaboration with the Innocence Project and I believe the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. And that's in 2015, they announced that they had the mistakes in 96% of those cases that they had reviewed so far. It's not clear if they're going to continue reviewing under the new DOJ and whether that's going to go forward. I want to pick up on that because we there are efforts to try and fix this situation with forensic science. So for example, um, there's the, the National Commission on Forensic Science was looking into this. They were shut down in April 2017 by Jeff Sessions. So why do you think people like Mr. Sessions are trying to shut down the people that are trying to fix the problem? In 2009, there was a big report that came out from the National Academy of Sciences that was the first really comprehensive look at the forensic sciences. And it was actually partly because of Jess Sessions that this report came about because he was one of a group of senators that were interested in getting more funding for crime labs. They basically wanted more forensic science because there's a big backlog of cases, more testing needed to be done. And so there was hope among this group of senators that they could get more money the National Academy of Sciences would sort of back them up and they would you know, move along. 
So their motivation was more forensic science. Right. Yeah. So and then convict more bad guys. Right. Unfortunately, what they got was this really damning report that called what they found a community in disarray. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was the beginning of the sort of national wake up that like maybe there was something wrong in forensic science. So uh, then in 2013, you had the NCFS, which was this council that you were talking about. And it was a really, you know, it was a really interdisciplinary body of scientists, forensic experts, defense attorneys, prosecutors, um, everyone who was sort of involved. It didn't have a lot of teeth. Uh, it only met a few times a year and gave recommendations to the DOJ, which the DOJ, for the most part, did not adopt. Um, but it was sort of a step in the right direction. Um, Trump was elected. Jeff Sessions became head of the DOJ, and he allowed this the NCFS to expire. They just sort of didn't renew it. Um, and basically, they moved all of the forensic reform efforts under the aegis of the DOJ. So this sort of interdisciplinary working groups of people thinking through this together, all suddenly now, all of this work is under the control of the DOJ. So the people that are in charge of prosecuting or the people that you know sit on one side of the case are now the ones making recommendations or deciding what is science and what isn't, rather than right. scientists. And as we said before, you know, why are they, I don't know that they're necessarily, you know, killing it or that they are necessarily trying to stop all of the forward movement in this area, but they're certainly moving very slowly and very cautiously and they have a lot to protect and they're perhaps not the people that should be doing this work. So my last question to you is, if you were in Jeff Sessions' position, if someone made you head of the DOJ or you made you Attorney General, what changes would you make? What would you like to see? Well, I think that the in that 2009 report, they suggested making a National Institute of Forensic Science that is separate from the DOJ, has authority uh, to dec- do testing, declare what kinds of forensic science have achieved uh, basic standards of reliability, have established error rates, and very importantly, to just the DOJ would have no say over that. And I think that that's a great idea because it goes all the way back to the cognitive bias. It's almost cognitive bias at an institutional level. You need to get an independent, as much as that's possible, you need to get an independent group of people who are in charge of these basic scientific standards. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people watching this at home that might not have known that we don't actually have these basic standards in place Mm -hmm. of what constitutes forensic science or what is admissible evidence in court. So uh, if you ever find yourself on a jewelry, now you know. Um, Everyone, please, if you're watching this at home, go and get yourself a copy of The Nation. The piece is called Forensic Science Put Jimmy Gamerick in Prison for 24 Years. What if it wasn't science? Written by these two. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you.